Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Let's listen in as our team discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome to our uh, podcast. Today, uh, uh, we're kind of back to the future, um, whether that's fortunate or unfortunate, it's kind of uh, depending on your point of view. Uh, but we're going to talk about a paper that was literally just published two or three days ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, looking at convalescent plasma in severe COVID patients. Yes, that's right. I said COVID. Um, uh, despite what I think all of us are hoping, um, unfortunately, COVID is not gone. Um, and in fact, if you take a look at the data in the United States, uh, the, the primary diagnosis for COVID has actually gone up in the last six weeks. Uh, so are we, we've definitely seen an uptick in numbers in people hospitalized with COVID. No, not with COVID as a secondary diagnosis or incident COVID, but people who actually are coming to the hospital because of respiratory problems and COVID. Uh, as of this recording, I've actually got three patients with respiratory failure due to COVID in my ICU. So uh, I've definitely seen an uptick and, and I think uh, most places in the United States have seen an uptick. So, I mean, as much as I'd love to say COVID is gone and we're never going to worry about it again, um, unfortunately, that's just not the case. And yes, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that, you know, yes, it will eventually become endemic and, and uh, you know, it'll become like the, you know, the flu and we'll see kind of waves of it. And, you know, but that, that uh, you know, doesn't help uh, uh, clinicians or patients, I think, who are seeing these patients who are still dying of this disease. And so um, um, it's, it's still, still a problem um, is the bottom line. Um, we now know that as of March 2023, there's been more than 670 million cases of COVID, including a, a, a total of almost 7 million deaths. And, and let me repeat that. Uh, in the three years since the pandemic had started, we've had 7 million people die worldwide of COVID. Uh, that is a staggering number to me. Um, and we could do multiple podcasts about why that is and, and, and what we could have done to fix that, but, but that this is not the place for that. Um, certainly we're uh, in the depths of the, of the pandemic, uh, which was, you know, just the most craziest time of my, my, my professional career. We saw a lot of patients obviously with respiratory failure and about, uh, 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 I'd say anywhere from 20% of them. And that's what other studies have suggested, uh, resulted in, in the requirement for mechanical ventilation. Not to uh, to uh, denigrate uh, Dr. Elon Musk. That's a joke. Um, I understand that he has recently been purporting the fact that uh, you know uh, ventilators were killing people uh, during the depths of COVID, uh, proving again that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Because of course we only you know we don't we don't uh, ventilate patients, put people on a ventilator on a whim. I mean, we put people on mechanical ventilators because all other forms of oxygen therapy was not enough to oxygenate the patient. Right. So I mean, there's no physician I know who, who just blithely goes around and says, let's, let's go innovate people. Um, and so, you know, uh, the, the bottom line is we, you know, is, is that we, you know, mechanical ventilation is still a valuable tool in COVID, but we don't use it willy nilly. We use it when everything else, including high flow and BiPAP doesn't work. And, and, and that's just literally, you know, the, the, what's going on now, of course, we, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, we've, we've been fortunate to come up with some treatments. And again, we could do an entire uh, podcast on, 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 on some of the latest information as far as treatments, there's been some evidence uh, looking at, at some other biologics, including infliximab uh, for its use. But uh, really the one that that uh, has come up in, in the last six months or so is the drug bilabellamab. Um, bilabellamab is an anti-C5A uh, monoclonal antibody. 
and high concentrations of C5A were reported in patients with severe COVID-19. Um, and so basically uh, this anti-C5A monoclonal antibody basically uh, blocks the immune response and the inflammatory response, including release of histamines that uh, occurs when someone develops COVID. Now, the, the drug is actually FDA approved uh, recently for the use of COVID in severe patients who are mechanically ventilated, but it is worth uh, noting that National Institutes of Health in their latest a guideline update. And they, of course, have a living guideline that is updated almost, it seems like, every other week. Uh, as of right now, as of the recording of this podcast, suggests that there's insufficient evidence for the use of uh, bilabellumab for the treatment of severe COVID. That's based on the results of something, the, the big study that they looked at it called the Panama study. And basically the Panama study uh, did not initially find a difference in 28 day mortality in mechanically ventilated patients with COVID compared to those who received a placebo. However, in, a, in an, another analysis uh, that, that made some adjustments, they did find a, a decrease in 28 day mortality. And that's basically what the FDA uh, kind, kind of hung on. Um, it, uh, but that was enough that the, that the NIH has basically said, we're not going to make a call whether this is a good drug or not to use. In my hospital, we have declined to add it to formulary because of, uh, in the Panama study, if you did not get it within 48 hours of, of hospitalization, uh, it had no benefit and it is uh, quite expensive. And so for all those reasons, uh, and it seems to have a fairly, a fairly minimum effect size, it, it actually was only about a 2% absolute difference in, in, in 28 day mortality. And again, that, that was only after doing a, uh, a kind of a, a reanalysis of the original study, which always kind of makes you a little nervous. So for all those reasons, we have not personally added it in my health system. I know some places probably have, but NIH has basically, uh, not come down for or against it. So basically when I have a hospitalized patient who is, uh, we there with primary COVID, if they're on, um, a conventional oxygen, of course, we start them on, on dexamethasone six milligrams a day, which has really been the, the treatment almost since the, the, the pandemic started. And we have a couple of studies showing that, that it has a benefit. Um, and then if they are uh, rapidly decreasing uh, in their status, they're starting to require high flow nasal oxygen or non-invasive ventilation, um, then we often will add immunomodulators. In my hospital, it's usually baricitinib, but some places are using tocalizumab. And as I mentioned, uh, the latest update from NIH actually says that, that alternatives can be IV abatacept and IV infliximab. Uh, both of those are, are anti-inflammatory drugs used for rheumatoid arthritis and, and uh, Crohn's disease and things along those lines. Uh, again, not something that I've seen used a lot. Uh, also recommending, uh, you know, making sure that all these patients are on DVT prophylaxis because of the high risk of thrombosis associated with it. So that's the current state of treatment of, of, of hospitalized patients with respiratory failure and COVID. But again, these patients who are mechanically ventilated, who have developed acute respiratory di uh, distress syndrome, those patients have an incredibly high mortality. Um, and, and treatment of those besides what we've just talked about is fairly minimal. Now, one of the very first treatments for COVID uh, in, the, uh, in the early months following 2020 was convalescent plasma. And convalescent plasma, of course, is plasma from people who have had COVID and survived and theoretically have antibodies against COVID. And in the early phases of the pandemic, we, we very commonly gave uh, patients uh, convalescent plasma. Um, it kind of was, uh, uh, there was a special protocol that, that FDA allowed this to happen. And uh, the, uh, while all this was going on, the Mayo Clinic 
actually was doing a, a big multi-center study taking a look at convalescent plasma and unfortunately found, and, and we found this out, I think around the middle of 2021, that, that uh, uh, convalescent plasma really didn't seem to have a benefit. And so its use was largely abandoned. There was still some um, e um, evidence suggesting that immunocompromised patients who have respiratory failure, that there may be some benefit from convalescent plasma. But we went from using it quite routinely in patients admitted with COVID to not using it at all in, in, in a fairly short space of time. Now, the, the Mayo Clinic study and, and other studies looked at basically all comers who are hospitalized with, with COVID. There was no specific study that looked at patients who are mechanically ventilated with, with acute respiratory distress syndrome. And so the purpose of the study that was just published here just this week in New England Journal of Medicine, which was called the Confidence Study, was actually designed to, to figure that out. And so so the, 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 the two pieces of the study that makes it a little different than previous studies is that one, again, they really wanted to focus on, you know, again, quite very ill patients. And the other is they wanted to make sure that the level of neutralizing antibody was quite high. That was the other big study, uh, things that other studies have found is that they were looking at relatively low uh, um, antibody titers, you know, one to 64, you know, uh, one to 124, stuff like that. Um, is it possible that if, if, if we gave uh, convalescent plasma to people who had higher titers, um, um, would that have a benefit? And so that was the confidence study. And the, uh, and again, just barely published, it was a randomized two group open label study that was done in Belgium. It was started actually, you know, in, in the fairly early phases of, 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 of the pandemic and has recently, you know, had enough patients that they were able to, to take a look at the evidence and basically publish their data. They wanted people who were uh, to be given either placebo uh, or, or um, convalescent plasma as soon as possible after mechanical ventilation, because of course that probably plays a role. And so they, the, the goal was if at all possible to initiate patients in the study, if they were intubated for less than 48 hours, and then they were assigned a one-to-one -one ratio to receive a unit of convalescent plasma with again, that titer of, of, uh, anti-SARS-2 of at least one to 320 or standard of care. They had to have a clinical fragility scale of less than six. So these were patients who, who uh, weren't, uh, you know, who were not fragile, basically patients who uh, weren't uh, likely to have mortality associated with ARDS in the first place. So something that, that that's worth looking for. And they used the old World Health Organization clinical progression scale uh, for COVID that was designed in 2020. And again, all these patients had to have against severe COVID with scores of seven, eight, or nine. Um, and, and again, had to be on, on mechanical ventilation. They also had to have ARDS, which they use the standard Berlin definition, which takes a look at, at uh, uh, the, the uh, um, PAO2 of a patient and its ratio to the amount of oxygen we're giving patients, as well as some other imaging definitions and things like that. But bottom line was it was the standard definition for ARDS. Donors were recruited by the Belgian Red Cross among adults who'd been infected with uh, COVID-19 and had fully recovered between 28 days and 10 months earlier, because as with a lot of other diseases, the neutralizing antibody titers are highest right when you first recover and then decline over time. And it is worth noting that the, that the titers that we're looking for at one to 320 were significantly higher than other studies had shown. The primary outcome was, as with most of these other studies, death at 28 days after randomization. They looked at a, a variety of secondary outcomes, including adverse effects, inflammatory or anti-COVID-19 antibody responses, SOFA scores, which is a, a way of looking at acuity of, 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 of patients and organ failure, length of hospital stay, also days by death 90 and one year. 
The uh, statistics were pretty standard. They anticipated a 28 day mortality of 40%, which is probably even low in my opinion, based on what, what we saw. Um, and, and they felt that, that a relative drop of, of 30% by 28 day mortality was re realistic and relevant and probably certainly as good as the data we have with, uh, with varicitinib and, to and tocalizumab, which are standard therapies now in severe COVID. Taking a look at the patients themselves, uh, they were pretty much the patients that, that we saw in the, in the worst parts of the pandemic. Um, mean age was 64, uh, uh, about 65% of patients were male. It is worth noting that this was largely an unvaccinated cohort uh, in the study. Uh, only about 11% of patients were vaccinated. So again, one of the strikes of the study is we really don't know uh, if, if this data would be um, uh, generalizable to people who have been either vaccinated or have received the latest booster. The other big strike then is, is we have, of course, had different variants of COVID since uh, since then. And and knowing if 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 uh, you had a you know, you have uh, titers to one variant of COVID and you get infected with another variant of COVID, will that first one work? Early studies have suggested that there's a lot of cross protection, but that is that it's worth noting. Uh, meantime, since the first reported symptoms, these people had had symptoms for about 12 days before they uh, um, were hospitalized. Uh, they were in the hospital for about five days before they were in the ICU and then in the ICU for about three days, basically. Mean Apache score, which is a score of, of, of acuity of sickness, was only 13. But again, many of these patients were there primarily with respiratory failure. They didn't have sepsis. They didn't have acute kidney injury, uh, things along those lines. Almost everybody reached uh, met the definition of ARDS. And uh, the cycle threshold for the PCR test was pretty low at 22 and 20. And again, that's something that we've learned a lot about since uh, the, the, the pandemic started is that many patients, especially those who are severely ill, can actually shed virus for weeks after they've been infected. And, and really, even though the uh, acute viral infection phase may be starting to fade, they still have quite a bit of virus that, that, that they're trying to fight off. And again, that's kind of the point of convalescent plasma is that, is that remaining virus can be basically in, inhibited and stopped by the, the, by, by the donated plasma. Um, they had mul a multitude of other disease states, as you might imagine, including hypertension, COPD, diabetes, uh, uh, things along those lines. Their mean body index was 30. So I, I think certainly uh, what we would see here, maybe even on a little bit on the low side. Uh, and again, only a small percentage of patients had received any sort of antiviral therapy. The majority of the study was done before the development of Paxlovid. So it was really remdesivir and only about 5% of patients uh, had received remdesivir, but almost everybody in both arms did receive dexamethasone. Uh, about 95% in both arms did receive dexamethasone. So I, you know, again, fairly similar to what I'd want to see, um, unfortunately, because of the, the, the length of time it took them to do this study. Um, uh, they did not include a lot of patients who received what are some of the standard therapies uh, we have now, again, including Paxlovid, or baricitinib or anything along those lines. So it is worth, worth noting that. So what did they find in the study and what can we kind of take from it? Well, we will talk about that after a word from our sponsor, CE Impact. Are you a pharmacist by design? Since we hold a vital position on the healthcare team, it is our responsibility to advance our knowledge and skills so we can provide the best possible care to our patients. Being a pharmacist by design means striving to be the best version of ourselves not just as professionals, but as individuals dedicated to improving patient outcomes. Learn more about Pharmacist by Design at ceimpact.com. Join us and begin your journey to being the best version of your pharmacist self. 
So we're back uh, yet again talking about COVID and talking about convalescent plasma in the confidence study, looking at severe COVID in, in uh, ARDS patients. And so what did they find in the study? Again, the primary outcome was 28-day mortality, which was uh, which did occur in 35% of patients in the convalescent plasma group versus 45% of patients in the standard of care group. This was statistically significant. Um, and when they looked at a number of other stratification points, as opposed to like different uh, disease states that the patients had and things along those lines, it still largely retained uh, its statistical significance, but it is worth noting that that most of that was lost if patients were randomized uh, after significantly after ventilation initiation. In fact, most of the benefit uh, seemed to occur in patients who did get uh, convalescent plasma within the first forty-eight hours after um, uh, uh, mechanical ventilation, and that that benefit was largely lost after that. But um, once that, but if you were able to do that, the number needed to treat was only eleven. So again, to save one life, to 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 uh, decrease mortality at twenty-eight days, you only have to treat eleven patients with convalescent plasma. So actually, that's, that's pretty impressive and certainly at least as good uh, results as we have from um, uh, the immunomodulators that we are commonly used in patients with, with, with severe COVID. Most patients uh, tolerated the drug quite well. Um, uh, there were a number of adverse effects, but uh, um, almost uh, nearly all of them were either related to COVID-19 or, or complications of organ support. Um, and so uh, none of them were directly related to convalescent plasma. And that was certainly our experience in the early years, uh, early part of the pandemic is that we were giving convalescent plasma out left and right, and it didn't really seem to have any serious adverse effect on them. Uh, the uh, uh, mean neutralizing antibody did increase uh, uh, in both groups, which is really kind of not, not surprising. Um, and they uh, also probably not all that surprising is that at initiation, if you were sicker, you tended to have a, a better, a bigger benefit, which again, probably not all that surprising. So uh, they looked at, at different time uh, frames. They looked at different disease uh, states as confounders. And except and with the with the exception of the 48 hour break point, it doesn't seem like there was a whole lot of difference in the results compared to the overall results. So I kind of walked away from the study going, okay, if we're going to do this, we need to do, we need to do it ASAP as soon as the patient is intubated. So now, of course, this is different than the Mayo Clinic study, and it's different than several other studies that looked at convalescent plasma that did not find a benefit. And again, why we kind of abandoned its use in 2021. The authors note that the that they feel that the big differences occur for three for three reasons. One, as they noted, that use of convalescent plasma had a much higher titer than previous studies had, um, and they were able to measure that uh, uh, when they took a look at anti-IgG antibodies to COVID-19. And, and so that that's worth noting. And they note that, that other studies that had not found a benefit had much lower titers on the whole. So that's, that, that, that's kind of worth noting as well. The trial did focus on patients with ARDS, and so they did not look at all comers, and they kind of felt like uh, um, uh, these were the patients that were most likely to benefit um, um, and hadn't been really studied before. They also, again, noted that even though uh, the, the acute uh, uh, viral infection phase had probably passed in these patients because they had uh, really low cycle thresholds, they still probably were having some sort of, of, of viral effect to their illness. And that was kind of propagating the inflammatory response that kind of leads to this kind of wildfire of, of destruction of, of lung tissue. And so they felt like, you know, that, that this was a good target to take a look at. And of course, because at the time they started this study, um, there, uh, many of the tools that we are using for ARDS, you know, weren't there. So again, they, they did not use immunomodulators, Paxil, they did not exist, you know, 
and, and all those sort of stuff. So it is, again, the study is a moment in time in a, in a disease where its treatments were rapidly changing. And for those of you who were around uh, for, you know, and, and were in the depths of, of, of COVID, you know how quickly things changed. It seemed like almost week to week, something new was coming down, either they showed a benefit or didn't show a benefit, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the uh, second reason. And, and uh, again, they wanted to take a look at, at speed of, of, it, uh, of administration because other studies had not either not said when they were going to give a convalescent plasma um, or, or were it was beyond the 48 hour window. So for all those reasons, they felt that's why they necessarily maybe found a, a, um, a benefit when other studies had not, not found a benefit. Now, one of the things that I have is, again, the study was conducted uh, over about a year and a half period. And as we know, we've you know cycled through several variants of COVID. We now have had gone through kind of a, a range of COVID where the, the variants seem to be as infectious as other variants, in fact, maybe more infectious, but with a generally lower virulence rate. So again, you know, uh, these, these were looking primarily at, at earlier variants. Would you still find the same of, uh, same results in a, for example, vaccinated patients and patients who, uh, uh, are affected with a different variant, which may not be as virulent. And, and of course, we're never going to be able to answer those questions based on this study, but I think this is something that, that if we see another spike in, in severe, uh, COVID patients requiring mechanical ventilation, given the fact that convalescent plasma is relatively inexpensive as those things go, and considering how safe it is, um, I think it's something to, to really consider in a disease state where, again, in this study, 45% of patients died in 28 days, and you have, a, you have an intervention that seems relatively safe that has a number needed to treat of only 11, so a pretty large effect size. So we're actually going to be discussing this, uh, and I suspect most uh, healthcare systems are going to take a look at this uh, information and decide whether uh, we're going to kind of re-put convalescent plasma back on the map for the treatment. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what NIH does with this data and will they will they alter their treatment algorithms to include it as well. Uh, I think that a lot of health systems you know, in the early phases of the pandemic, blood banks were working very hard with health systems to make sure that that there was an adequate supply of convalescent plasma as the, the pandemic kind of, as the acute phase of the pandemic seemed to wane some, that largely dropped off. I know that we've used convalescent plasma a couple of times in immunosuppressed patients, and it has been more difficult to get because again, we, uh, 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 blood banks are not routinely saving plasma uh, in patients who had, who recently had COVID or they're not getting donations specifically of patients who recently had COVID of plasma. So that may be the other issue that we're dealing with is if we see a significant spike in, in severe respiratory failure from, from COVID, will we have uh, the supply to keep up with the demand? But bottom line with the study is that it, it definitely seems beneficial. It seems safe. Um, and even though we're going to have a, uh, there is some generalizability issues, I suspect many healthcare systems are going to consider this as an add-on therapy, at least to steroids in patients with severe COVID. So that's it for this week of uh, Game Changers. Thanks for listening as always. We will see you next week, but until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Jen here. Be sure to check out our education at ceimpact.com. You'll find it to be your one-stop shop for all the CE resources you need. Become a Pharmacist by Design member today to access it all for free, including CE for this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week on Game Changers Clinical Conversations.